I, th- I think if most people were honest, when they think of evangelicals, they imagine a Southern white person who votes Republican and is a Christian Christian nationalist. But based on one of the more poignant chapters of the book covering the legacy of black evangelicals, um, you kind of call into question why this association with evangelicals with whiteness is a misnomer. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hale, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to on an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Folden-Lord, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University's School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023. For more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.edu. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Isaac Sharp. He is the Director of Certificate Programming and a visiting professor at Union Theological Seminary. He's also the co-editor of Evangelical Ethics and the author of a new book, The Other Evangelicals. Isaac, thank you for joining the conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Very excited to chat today. So you're you're in New York, but you're, uh, you're from the South originally. You, you have some roots here in CBF land. A little bit. Uh, going back to, uh, I was actually born and raised in East Tennessee, and then before coming to New York City, I uh, spent several years in Atlanta, uh, where I was uh, in and around uh, folks, many folks involved in the CBF world, uh, as I graduated from Mercer uh, with my MDiv in uh, 2013. <laughs> You're not going to age yourself. You're safe here with this audience, you know, so... Uh... It's it's fascinating because I've I've got several friends of mine or those that kind of I look to as as mentors that kind of you know they did the opposite they're from the south went to Union came back down to the south you know so you, you've gone up to Union you've kind of stuck up there so congratulations to you <laughs> yeah yeah thanks it's uh, <laughs> uh I don't know when the threshold is that you cross where you become officially a New Yorker and I don't know if I will ever uh, cross that threshold having spent uh, so many of my formative years in the South, but uh, have been here long enough that it's uh, starting to feel a little like home-ish. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're good in my book as long as you don't start pulling for the pinstripes, you go for the, <laughs> the little brother down the road. So, yeah. yeah. Well, um, you've got this uh, really fascinating book out, uh, turned our focus there, uh, The Other Evangelicals. This book examines the story and legacy of folks most... Uh, who uh, do not associate with this movement, such as liberals and black and progressives and feminists and gay Christians. You wrote 
This is the story of those who, for one reason or another, did not subscribe to the de facto evangelical orthodoxy on a particular issue, or who literally could not fit within the prevailing cultural expectations of mainstream evangelical world, or lost their arguments for different kinds of evangelicalism, or believed, thought, acted, voted, and simply looked a bit different from the predominant picture of what evangelical was supposed to be. What made you want to tell these stories? Yeah, this is a this is a fascinating question because there are so many different stories going on here, right? Um, a f some of the journey to telling these stories actually began while I was in Atlanta. So, uh, Dr. David Gushy and I worked on a book, uh, actually referenced at the beginning, Evangelical Ethics. Uh, we co-edited that book together, and in the process of working on that book, we had this discussion. That is a requisite for anybody who's working on something related to evangelicals or evangelicalism, and it's how to define what it means to be an evangelical and or uh, who is in and who is out of the category evangelical. So when you're working on a book like that, you literally have to uh, have some of those discussions and in that process uh, began coming across some folks that I had not previously known would have been associated with uh evangelicalism or the evangelical world and that was an interesting thing to me um and my moving uh on to doctoral work uh initially framed around looking at um evangelicals and evangelical responses and evangelical approaches to uh lgbtq folks and how the evangelical world deals with that the, some of these same questions kept coming up where um, I happened across these folks who had made different kinds of theological arguments across the years uh, from evangelical perspectives who uh, somehow were not on the radar uh, of the usual ways that evangelicalism is talked about. And that was an interesting thing to me, right? So along the way, I start asking this question, who are these folks and why are they, why do we not know about them? Why have we not heard about them? And part of the thinking with the research around the book was that uh, perhaps there is a reason why we don't. Uh, and that's, that is, that is in part the argument of the book. So, I mean, what's your, historically, what's been your proximity to evangelicalism? Maybe not necessarily now, which we'll get to a little bit later, but kind of historically in your lifetime, what's been your proximity to them? Yeah, see that, and that's another very interesting question that actually uh, uh, would be a perhaps a whole other book and other podcast in some in some ways a whole other episode. Um, so in Tennessee, where I grew up, uh, grew up in a Southern Baptist context, and uh, along the way, uh, parted ways with that particular tradition. Well, I guess would be the diplomatic way of putting it, um, and also that there's an interesting story to tell there in some ways. And actually, I think it, you know, I will try to keep us from, maybe I'll not go too far down this rabbit hole because we could talk about this the whole time. Um, uh, CBF relates to the story in some ways in that the Southern Baptist Convention, interestingly enough, is definitively evangelical by any definition of the word. And yet, uh, for much of the Southern Baptist history, uh, Southern Baptists did not kind of affiliate with the capital E mainstream uh, interdenominational evangelical movement uh, because they uh, didn't have to in in some some understandings because they didn't have to might by other tellings might didn't want to for a number of reasons. So it's an interesting uh, the Southern Baptist Convention and Baptists in America. Uh, including the uh, CBF, have an interesting relationship to this whole story uh, because of that. So there's a, there's a bit of weaving uh, some of uh, where I came from and some interesting theoretical questions uh, into that answer uh, because it's not, uh, you know, now it would be taken for granted that uh, Southern Baptist leaders, for instance, are uh, key evangelical figures, uh, but that wasn't always the case, uh, which is an interesting kind of historical quirk there, uh, which we, we could talk more about. I mean, Man, what's up with East Tennessee? You know, I, I'm looking at all the post-evangelical East Tennesseans that have been on this podcast. Of course, the late Rachel Hunt Evans, who's really from Alabama, but lived in East Tennessee. Zach Hunt, who's a good friend of the podcast. Matthew Paul Turner, you know, East Tennessee, good friend of the podcast. And, and now you, what, what is East Tennessee doing uh, <laughs> that's causing so many great thinkers to say, you know what, maybe not for me. 
I don't know. I don't know if there's a ge geographical thing going on there. I guess I never would have made us, uh, or I guess I haven't previously made some of those connections. I knew some of those folks, I guess, were from Tennessee, but uh, maybe hadn't uh, pinpointed the East Tennessee thing. Uh, it's an interesting part of the world, uh, the East Tennessee area. Tennessee is an interesting uh, state in many ways in that it's uh, almost uh, three separate states with the East Middle and West Tennessee having their uh, own distinct uh uh, cultural varieties and it's a very uh uh spread out state so i don't know maybe there, maybe there is something in the water there in the uh in the in the mountains of east tennessee <laughs> we can't go any further without talking about one of our annual sponsors baptist seminary of kentucky how does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry more and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. We are excited for a free giveaway sponsored by the NRSV Updated Edition from Zondervan. Zondervan has given us beautiful leather-bound NRSV Updated Editions to share with our listeners. We are giving one of these comfort print Bibles to the first listener that shares this episode on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Here's what you need to know. Be on the lookout for CBF's post about this episode. Click and share that post with the phrase, I want an NRSV updated edition. Be the first to do this, and we will mail you a new leather-bound NRSV updated edition. So uh, evangelical has become such a polarizing term. It's, it's, it's often either used disparagingly or in defense of a dominant expression of conservative Christianity. So tell us what you mean by evangelical. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, that's um, the label is part of the story. So this question of what, what it means to be evangelical in the 20th and 21st century context is part of the story I'm telling here and the evolution of it. Um, there's the, there's, uh, a joke that anybody who ever writes about evangelicalism always ends up acknowledging in some capacity uh, at the at the beginning of a work of work, or at least there's a um, it's almost a uh, it's almost a cliche at this point when you write about evangelicals, you have to acknowledge or evangelicalism how hard it is to define, uh, and it is it's uh, it's a tricky thing to pin down because evangelicalism you know historically is this category that folks use to describe this movement that uh, is not necessarily tied to denominations, but can be, and it has certain kinds of theological features and the uh, boundaries tend to expand and shift and contract and change over time. Um, in the 20th century context in the US, uh, when you're talking about evangelicalism or whenever I'm focusing on this story of evangelicals and capital E official evangelicals, um, what I'm talking about is the emergence of um, this transdenominational movement of folks who uh, identify with uh, the, this network this of evangelical organizations that becomes a really powerful um, a religious identity. It becomes one of the most uh, predominant kind of religious expressions in the contemporary U.S. context, and uh, it is uh, associated with um, a big network of schools and institutions and publishing houses and conferences and such that uh, one of a uh, useful way of identifying evangelicals is uh, uh, the kinds of books you read and conferences you go to and names you recognize because it is, it is this kind of like cultural network uh, that emerges. Uh, the joke that I was referencing earlier that I actually never told is uh, one of the kind of old ways that they talk about what it means to be evangelical is uh, to define an evangelical as an evangelical as anybody who likes Billy Graham. And that was a, that actually worked in some capacities for the 20th century uh, and even in the 21st century context, because um, of this nebulous nature of evangelicalism, it, it is the case that uh, evangelicalism is often defined and uh, 
policed uh, and led by uh, these charismatic figures who kind of transcend denominations. And Billy Graham was an example of that. So uh, that's a long-winded way of uh, uh, perhaps answering the definitional question. Uh, but it is the case that the book really is wrestling with this definitional question uh, because all of these folks, the stories I end up telling um, in some way themselves were wrestling with these uh, or pushing back against this um, particular definitional understanding of what it means to be evangelical. Uh, and that and one of the subtexts or not subtext, one of the arguments of the book is that it changed over time. And the you can trace the story of how it changed over time by watching um, watching evangelical history to see the folks who've gotten uh, forgotten along the way. But, you know, ultimately, this book is a historical analysis. Uh, and, and, and despite the more recent decades, um, evangelicalism um, actually was a big tent for a wide ranging theological perspective, including Liberals, you wrote, the only problem was that not everyone agreed that defending theological conservatism and inerrancy was what being evangelical should mean. In the long run, the second generation fundamentals behind the mid-century institutionalization of generally conservative evangelical identity were undeniably successful in their campaign to, campaign to claim the evangelical field for theological conservatives and theological conservatives only. Take us a little deeper here into this kind of fight that began to maybe create less theological diversity within this movement. Yeah, so this is one of the uh, interesting aspects of 20th century evangelical history in the U.S. context. Um, the usual way of telling the story goes back to early early 20th century context and the, uh, the divide between uh, fundamentalism and modernism, right? So this idea that... Um, U.S. American Protestantism splits uh, in the 20th century along transdenominational lines with uh, the conservative fundamentalists on one side and the progressive mainline folks on the other. Such, And you get this rubric that uh, has staying power in the 20th and 21st century discourses around uh, U.S. Protestantism. Uh, we, we still use these uh, categories and labels today, evangelicals and mainline, uh, either denominations or folks. So part of the story um, that I am playing with there in the early parts of the book is to look at that dividing line in early 20th century Protestantism and to say that this question of who got to be in and out of the evangelical category was less settled uh, for a longer period of time than a lot of folks remember. So the usual way of telling the story is in, is in part right that um, – early 20th century fundamentalists became the kind of precursors of the trans-denominational mid-century evangelical movement associated with institutions like the National Association of Evangelicals. And yet uh, the these definitional problems were kind of there from the start, where it is if you are developing this trans-denominational movement associated with, you know, quote-unquote conservative theology, what does that mean? Um, exactly. Because if you ask different folks in different denominations, uh, what, or if you bring together folks from various denominations, um, unified around certain kinds of things like evangelical identity, uh, they bring their own denominational loyalties and quirks and theological emphases. And that becomes a difficult thing in the context of this uh, big tent. So one of the um, things I end up discussing a bit in the book is that a recurring theme in evangelical theology in the 20th century and in defining uh, what it means to be evangelical is uh, resorting to inerrancy, right? The, this idea of the, of the inerrancy of the Bible, that the Bible is inerrant, uh, becomes the kind of like lowest common denominator that evangelical um, thinkers and gatekeepers use to say, if you can affirm this, then you're an evangelical, and if you can't, then you're not. And that uh, has been a really powerful defining feature of evangelical identity, uh, including that, uh, including for instance, um, groups like the Evangelical Theological Society, which uh, to this day has a one uh, one statement uh, statement of faith that is inerrancy. If you can affirm inerrancy, that's the requirement for being a quote-unquote capital E official evangelical theologian as defined by the Evangelical Theological Society. 
So that's the, this is the kind of like uh, one of the theological defining features of how this um, identity gets defined. Part of what I end up discussing uh, in several places, though, is that um, that uh, constantly poses problems when uh, you have two groups or two individuals, two thinkers who agree uh, in their affirmation of inerrancy and say, yes, I affirm the inerrancy of the Bible, but then disagree uh, about how to interpret it. Uh, and reach differing conclusions uh, about its interpretation. And that becomes this kind of like um, recurrent issue among the, the evangelical tent. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we're here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. So biblical narrative was obviously the focus of this particular movement um, at this moment and in, in the movement's history, excuse me. Um, we've recently done a episode or two on biblical inerrancy and the history behind it. So I'll, we'll save our yeah, audience nice. from getting into that, uh, that conversation. We had, when Zach Hunt's uh, God breathed book came out, we spent a lot of time on that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this, this was such a, a, a critical proverbial hill for conservative evangelicals to win or to die on. And really to this day still kind of remains that piece today. What, what do you think uh, is the new hill that evangelicals are are willing to die or to win on? Yeah, so that's a it's a it's a super interesting question because one of the things that I end up suggesting in the book is that um, you get these an interesting thing that happens around something like iner inerrancy as an example, but then other interpretational issues as well is the recurrence of these debates where it's it will seem like something is settled in evangelical circles. And then a generation later, there will be the, the same kinds of uh, debates uh, and discussions over the limits of evangelical identity. So examples today that would actually tie a couple of examples from today that would, uh, you know, in current evangelical circles that would tie directly to previous debates would be around uh, current debates around the role and place of women in evangelical organizations and the nominations. Southern Baptist Convention seems to be relitigating re this question once again for the umpteenth time uh, in their history and around race would be another uh, evangelical flashpoint currently, uh, where it is the case that um, you will have recurring in subsequent generations folks who challenge the uh, prevailing orthodoxy on the place and role of women or the place and role of uh, black folks in evangelical circles. And it becomes a flashpoint. And that is happening, I think, in some ways again today, where uh, you see that crop up and then the evangelical powers that be start drawing lines uh, around, you know, this complementarianism is a is an example the debates around uh, gender roles uh, currently and all of the uh, kind of um, uh, critical race theory boogeyman that's going on in evangelical circles right now. In some ways, this is these are, I think, recurrences of uh, debates that have happened in previous uh, generations of evangelicals. And that's part of what I'm trying to drive out a little bit uh, with the book is to uh, 
remind folks that some of these things have been debated before and that this isn't the first time that uh uh evangelicals in america are going uh are, are going at these questions no um I, th I think if most people were honest when they think of evangelicals they imagine a southern white person who votes republican and is a christian <laughs> Christian nationalist, but based on one of the more poignant chapters of the book covering the legacy of black evangelicals, um, you kind of call into question why this association with evangelicals with whiteness is a misnomer. Yeah, and it's an interesting thing because that particular chapter and that particular question has so many layers to it. Um, one of the the fascinating things that happens in the the scholarship of u.s american religious history for example is the suggestion that um historically black christianity in this country the varieties of black christianity the historically independent black church traditions have traditionally been pretty evangelical when defined theologically this is a claim that historians uh regularly make and in the past several years you've seen um evangelical leaders highlighting some of that to suggest oh yeah evangelicalism is not as um not as white as it's made out to be in popular representations of it and there is some truth to that in a certain way right if you define what it means to be evangelical by certain theological tenets then uh Black Christians in this country, many, many of them meet those criteria. The interesting thing or the the uh, complicating factor, I would say, is that historically Black Christians have also been very reluctant to identify with the evangelical label. So part of that chapter is exploring this question of why that is. And one of the ways of coming at that question is to look uh, to Black Christians who did identify with evangelical you know evangelicalism mainstream evangelicalism capital e you know official quote-unquote evangelicalism and the stories of those folks i suggest uh give you some sense of what's going on there where you get these uh black christian leaders black christian figures who who going back to the 50s and 60s were saying things like yes i identified with this religious movement i this was my religious home and yet Anytime I could check all the boxes theologically and say, yes, I agree with this and I identify with this movement, there would always be, it would never be quite enough. There would always be something else. It would always be uh, around election time, getting poked and prodded about who I'm going to vote for or uh, around during civil, in the wake of the uh, civil rights movement, asking, asking black Christians in evangelical spaces, what they thought of uh, Martin Luther King and, you know, those riots out there in the streets. Um, and that also is a is a story that is a to to the our previous uh, discussion our previous question is a recurring thing that you see it's become a kind of like veritable tradition where Christians of color who move in and around evangelical spaces um, have often identified the kind of thoroughgoing white cultural assumptions in those evangelical spaces that white evangelical leaders time and again seem unable to reckon with. Um, and that is this kind of complicating thing in what it means to be evangelical because you get um, uh, you get different ways of slicing it up. And sometimes if it is defined theologically, then yes, you know, the black Christians would be evangelical. And yet they don't, uh, many, many don't consider themselves evangelicals. And so that's an, that's one of these things that I think is a, uh, um, an interesting thing to explore because it is, uh, I would argue disingenuous on the part of certain white, uh, evangelical leaders to say, oh yes, this is a very, uh, evangelicalism is a much more diverse movement, uh, when those folks may not be identifying with the movement. Yeah, I think. Uh, one of the more brilliant quotes from the book, uh, joining the ranks of the card-carrying evangelical still is required coming to terms with the mainstream evangelical culture closely associated with whiteness. With a ticket price that high, it is any wonder that so few interested were interested in a mission. Um, you know, 
While the term post-evangelical has entered into the zeitgeist over the last few years, the conceptualization of being post-evangelical is nothing new. In fact, you cover the growing alternative to evangelicalism and the work of people like Jim Wallace going back to the 1970s. Uh, talk to us about the roots of the alternative movement, the progressives. Yeah, so th this question of post or ex or former evangelical is 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 rife throughout the the various chapters and um such that that is a you know t it, t there is a current flashpoint around this question of ex evangelical seems to have caught on as a thing that is uh, uh seems to be a kind of movement that is coalescing and yet yeah that part of the story i'm telling is that there have been folks who who voluntarily or involuntarily uh made their way out of evangelicalism for decades going back the um the progressives question is an interesting one in that um the evangelical politics right the, this close identification of evangelical identity uh, as you said earlier with uh you know a christian who votes republican um happens over time is part is part of the kind of base level argument um the folks who i talk about in the progressive evangelical chapter um, in some, in actually not, you know, not in some ways, in almost every case, were not, were not necessarily envisioning themselves as post-evangelical. They were framing what they were doing as, um, as e officially fully evangelical. They're the kind of the claim of these progressive evangelical figures in, uh, uh, generally speaking, the, the so-called evangelical left was that, no, we are evangelical by any theological definition. That is, that is who we are. And yet, uh, we are trying to keep alive an alternative to an alternative evangelical politics to the close, the increasingly close association of, uh, evangelical identity with partisan politics, uh, and the Republican party. So you get these folks uh, like Jim Wallace or um, Ron Sider or John Alexander uh, and folks associated with this movement who, who who make the argument because of our evangelical identity, we believe that there are times we must support uh, political policies that you know are aligned with more progressive, uh, left leaning side of the U.S. political spectrum, and and that that doesn't make us any less evangelical uh, in terms of the you know theological definitions of what it means to be evangelical. And they and these folks fought for a long, long time and fought hard to keep alive this alternative kind of evangelical politics. And part of what I argue is that they just got really eclipsed by the rise of the religious right such that the um forces of the the religious right were incredibly successful in defining what it means to be evangelical in terms of partisan politics such that nowadays uh the evangelical identity one of the most common and accurate associations is with you know a christian who votes republican No, it's it's uh, not a stretch to say that evangelicals um, are associated with masculinity and patriarchy, the tales of which uh, friends of the podcast, Chris and Copies Dumay and Beth Allison Barr have covered at length in their work. But I wonder if you can tell us more about the influence of feminists that came out of evangelicalism. Yeah, the question of gender roles is one of those that we, 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 as we mentioned earlier, is I think a flashpoint currently in uh, e evangelical circles, um, you know, with uh, in part related to the work of uh, folks like Kristen Dumay and uh, Beth Barr, who are uh, bringing to the forefront the fact that this particular understanding of gender roles has become definitive in evangelical circles. Part of the story that I'm telling is how that happened and from a slightly different angle than, say, uh, Chris Numay's. So Chris Numay's book uh, uh, is highlighting the 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 fact, the sheer fact of this kind of uh, masculinity, uh, this vision of masculinity becoming so powerful and in some ways controlling in evangelical circles. And the story I'm telling is about the folks who got uh, cast aside in that journey to that happening. So such that um, 
the rise of complementarianism with folks like the uh you know john piper and wayne grudem and then the uh expression of that in you know um places like mars hill uh that entire phenomenon was uh in part driven by an explicit effort on the part of its leaders to fight a rising feminist movement that was happening in evangelical circles and that's not even conjecture that's just they make that clear they in the early work some of uh, piper and grudem's early work um on this kind of uh you know defining complementarianism as what they suggest is the uh true interpretation of quote-unquote biblical gender roles they admit we are writing to combat evangelical feminism as this kind of like dangerous thing that's going on. So the story that I end up focusing on in the book is to suggest the, or is to recover and revisit the story of these folks who were evangelical feminists. And explicitly they were uh, both evangelical and feminist. And, you know, in some ways like uh, evangelicals who would say being evangelical means that we, um, support progressive uh, policy positions. The evangelical feminists um, made arguments like, because we are evangelical, that means, you know, our our interpretation of what it means to be evangelical when it comes to uh, looking at, you know, the biblical witness and uh, the question of uh, gender roles is to suggest that uh, uh, when we take the Bible seriously, we see uh, egalitarian, the affirmation of, egalitarianism and the full and equal dignity of women and their ability to serve as leaders in the home and the church. And that that is an outworking of our evangelical uh, commitments, not the other way around. And that's a really interesting story from my, uh, from my view, because current debates over gender roles in evangelical circles, uh, a lot of times, um, seem not to acknowledge the fact that there was this tradition of evangelical feminism uh, that got really, really uh, kind of brutally, ruthlessly marginalized. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. This, the stories of those who, who grew up in the evangelical movement that identify as LGBTQ plus are all too frequent and have common themes of homophobia and, and transphobia. But you've brilliantly covered it in this book that the banner of evangelicalism cannot be hijacked um, by a subset of this movement. Um, but it doesn't prevent them from trying. They seem to be the most vocal when it comes to these things. So instead of highlighting the the history we know about a chunk of this population standing against um, you know, this group of people, um, who would you want to highlight that has done the alternative, who has created places of inclusivity and, and harbored hospitality and safeness for uh, members of the LGBTQ community? Yeah, this story of evangelical identity and its association with, you know, anti-gay hatred and animus is, I, I think I even explicitly suggest that close identification is well earned. Um, evangelical spaces became well known as, as explicitly and, uh, um, you know, violently anti-gay and for good reason. This is, uh, it, it, that, that part of the story is a true story, right, as, as you acknowledge. And yet, one of the fascinating features of that story that I end up talking about and unearthing is that, in some ways, it's um, it's almost silly to say, but it's not, uh, that there were always folks in these evangelical churches who just so happened to be LGBTQ, right? Or back in an earlier, using historical the um, language, how I end up talking about it in the book is, is mostly this was identified as folks who are gay and lesbian. 
and they were in they were in evangelical spaces right there was you get this association as evangelical identity evangelical traditions and denominations being particularly uh anti-gay and then with evolution over time as certain of the mainline quote-unquote mainline denominations become more uh arguably uh friendly to the possibility of lgbtq folks living and moving and breathing and serving within those contexts evangelicals double down on being um anti-gay the problem is that there have always and continue to be uh gay as i talk about in the book and or lgbtq uh evangelicals who say um this this theological movement or this or a particular theological definition of um christianity either you know any of the kind of distinctives um emphasis on scripture or uh affirmation of the uh centrality of the cross in in christian theology these kind of features um there are gay folks who that is defining of their definitive of their theology and so that story was a fascinating one for a number of reasons and that that piece of the puzzle is one example that this plays against a certain kind of rendering of evangelical history that is just that it is this universal place of rejection and while it while it became the case that that is a close association there were folks throughout the story who made arguments against uh, the prevailing uh, rejectionary stance going all the way back decades to folks like uh, Virginia Mollencott and Ralph Blair who say, uh, we affirm, affirm the authority of the Bible and we interpret a few passages differently. Um, and that should not mean that we are any less evangelical. And that became a tradition too, in some ways where there was a kind of, um, earlier generation of quote-unquote pro-gay evangelical evangelical perspectives and then uh later on another i i think i end up uh talking a little bit about quote-unquote new gay evangelicals with folks like uh justin lee and matthew vines who make who made similar arguments later on to say we are evangelical and we uh are christian in the evangelical way and we are gay and affirm the moral legitimacy of um, same gender loving partnerships. And that doesn't make us any less evangelical. We just interpret certain things, uh, certain passages slightly differently. And that's a story that um, I think is, uh, is a story that I was uh, uh, honored to tell. The, the controversies and conflicts of evangelicals has has not gone unnoticed by self-identified members and opponents. Some reports indicate it's a, a quickly declining movement, while other polls contradict this claim. What's your take on, on the current state of evangelicalism and its hold uh, in the American religious landscape? Yeah, this is the dangerous question, right? The kind of uh, prognostication question of uh, where where this thing might be going, because uh, anytime you make a prediction, uh, any somebody will be uh, all too happy to say, "Oh yeah, look how look at this uh, look at this foolish uh, prediction and how wrong it was." Um, so it's it's interesting, right? Um, to think in terms of how you might slice this question currently uh, of what it means to be evangelical and where it's going. So. It does seem that there is an inflection point with this, as you said earlier, post-evangelical or ex-evangelical thing happening, especially in the wake of the, the 2016 election. Um, and yet there are other polls that suggest evangelical identity, you know, or evangelicalism. And this is a part, this is in part where it gets tricky because it matters how you, you know, back to the theme, it matters how you define it, um, where it is not has not it seems to from some of the data i have seen it seems to not have been the case that evangelical that identification with evangelical identity at least in terms of self-identification is really declining all that much now it's it's heading in interesting in new directions where you get certain fascinating phenomena like uh folks who are not christian identifying as evangelical including uh, folks that would maybe muslim or hindu identifying as evangelical and that's a fascinating thing right in part this is this would be an example of of my argument that this identity has shifted profoundly and changed over time and what it what it means cannot be taken for granted so this question of where it's going i do a little bit of the kind of um 
current event assessment toward the end of the book. And where I end up essentially landing is that it is not likely that those who would be interested in fighting for a more expansive understanding of evangelicalism along or of evangelical identity along the lines of the stories that I tell in the book, it is not likely in my assessment and prediction that 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 will be an easy road to tread because um, for a number of reasons, but one of which is in this um, kind of post 2016 space where you have folks um, who the politicization or partisan alignment of evangelicalism has caused um, some folks to reevaluate their relationship to the movement. The reactions to the that kind of space, ex-evangelical, post-evangelical, just deconstruction, what you know, call it. There's various ways that folks render their stories of that journey. Um, the reaction of the powers that be in evangelical circles to that uh, has been, in from my uh, vantage point, to double down on uh, defining evangelicalism in the way that uh, it has become defined in the stories that I tell in the book. To suggest that you know anybody who is uh, uh, asking questions about gender roles or challenging prevailing uh, uh, you know kind of hyper masculinity in evangelical spaces or evangelical challenging evangelicalism on its racism. Uh, is uh, is attacking is attacking the Christian faith and they're not true Christians anyway. You know this is not universally the case how this goes, but just an example of the the sometimes the kind of rhetoric where you see um, these flashpoints and those in power doubling down on casting uh, those who are asking these kinds of questions in a negative light to say uh, to marginalize their perspectives. Um, so it is the my my kind of um, not so rosy take there at the end is that uh, uh, anybody who is interested in a more expansive understanding of what it means uh, to be Christian even uh, might uh, do well to consider options beyond uh, evangelical identity because I'm uh, uh, because it will be a very uh, hard road to tread to try to expand and reform that particular space is kind of what I end up going for. When given um, the briefest snapshot in, into this book and its history, it represents, um, you know, however, we've, we've touched on the experience of the other evangelical and, and I um, for one, you know, no longer label myself as, as one. This is a tradition I was raised in as, as many other people have. Is that the right choice to make or, or should we fight back for a redefining of this word within the American religious landscape? Yeah, it's complicated, right? Uh, and this is one of those, I, um, from the perspective of social movements or religious movements and this that this question of institution institutional affiliation or you know movement affiliation and uh what is the line upon which folks should decide whether to stay and work for change or you know proverbially proverbially shake the dust from the sandals and uh uh head for different pastures it's a complicated question and folks, individuals will arrive at different answers. And that's one of those things that I don't also want to begrudge uh, the folks who would fight for a different understanding of what it means to be, you know, whatever that they're affiliated with, whether it's, a you know, sticking it out in a denomination that one uh, doesn't agree with for uh, whatever reasons to fight for change and reform um, around, you know, the theological questions or uh, social, ethical, political issues I track in the book or even around, um, and it's not unrelated, uh, reform movements to, you know, fight sex abuse uh, pandemic in epidemic in uh, certain, you know, certain denominational traditions, evangelicalism, the space, evangelical spaces is undergoing some of that right now. And there are folks who will, um, for personal reasons, remain in institutions and fight for change. And that, you know, I don't, I don't want to um, devalue folks who make that choice and others, there will be uh, a line 
upon which they cannot abide any longer. And some of that will actually uh, have to do, it will be easier for certain folks and safer for certain folks um, to make one or the other decisions based on uh, personal identity, social location issues that uh, some of which they folks have no control over where uh, it, it can become the case for certain uh, groups of marginalized folks that it is, uh, you know, no exaggeration, dangerous uh, for them to remain in, in some of those spaces. And uh, so they have to leave. And yeah, that's a, it's a, there's no, I think that there is no one size fits all answer for that question of reform, right? And movements and institutions and whether or not uh, they are reformable is a, uh, a complicated one. And in talking about this book, I have folks who, uh, I talk to folks who are, um, who are trying to make, to build something different from within those spaces and say, you know, well, you know, the story you're telling, am I, uh, am I crazy for staying and trying to uh, do something different? Uh, it seems like you're painting a pretty, uh, a pretty bleak picture with the book. And, and that's a legitimate question, and it's a hard one to uh, reckon with from a, a personal perspective. Our guest is Dr. Isaac Sharp. The book is The Other Evangelicals. Isaac, it's been a, a joy chatting with you. Thank you for amplifying the story of The Other Evangelicals, helping us to see that the loudest voice is not always the only voice that matters. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was uh, great to talk to you today. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV updated edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.